From Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a big global business. I'm Christopher Lawson. We live in a global market. It's no longer good enough for startups to just focus on their local consumers. We have to think globally if we ever want to hit our market potential. And in the process of thinking globally, as a business owner, you might find yourself needing to send payments around the world. For a long time, those payments might have been made through bank transfer or even online systems like PayPal. The problem with these systems is the fees. I recently had to cash a cheque sent to me from a US advertiser. Firstly, I couldn't remember the last time I saw a cheque. And secondly, it cost me close to $50 in fees and bad exchange rates. But there are companies out there trying to solve this problem. In the past few years, we've seen a rise of consumer-focused companies like TransferWise who are charging customers the actual exchange rate with a small fee on top. And another one of those providers is Airwallex, a company which makes it easier for businesses to process international payments. They've also recently hit a $1 billion valuation. Lucy Liu is the President and Chief Operating Officer at Airwallex, but says those titles don't really have much meaning. I think titles in startups are always quite vague. I tend to tell people I do pretty much everything other than writing codes and, you know, um, develop software. Lucy was born in northern China, although her family lived in Shanghai for most of her childhood. Shanghai is one of the largest cities in the world and is an incredibly busy place. Lucy's father was a stock trader and her mother was a kindergarten teacher. And when she was 12, the family moved from Shanghai across to New Zealand. I think for me, um, my childhood was probably a little bit different to most of the kids in China because I went to a bilingual school. So I studied um, English very early on. And when I moved to New Zealand, most of my friends had to go to a language school, whereas um, I was fine. So um, I think that definitely changed my perspective a little bit. So I didn't find it very difficult to live in an English-speaking country. What was that experience like for you as a 12-year-old, like moving from Shanghai, which is like a very incredibly busy place, and then moving to New Zealand, which is not? People say New Zealand is covered in animals. It is. (laughs) (laughs) We had this park next to our um, school, which is actually, my high school was actually very much in the CBD area, but we still had sheep in the park next door. So um, it was very quiet. I think I liked it because it's very natural and, uh, you know, I liked sports. So it's always good to um, have the yes, uh, places to go to on the weekends and, you know, go to the beach. Um, whereas Shanghai, you know, it's just very crowded and very busy. Yeah, it's a very different experience. And were you a good student growing up? Were you someone that really enjoyed learning? Or I was top of the class. <laughs> I can say that. But um, I, I don't think I was like super into study academics right. per se. I just did very well, but um, I'm not like, I didn't, I don't think I was too hardworking to the point that I was only studying most of the time. Um, I did skip a grade in high school, which means I went to uni when I was 17. But that means, you know, also finishing earlier. And I, I think it was it was a little bit different, but I think it was quite fun. Being Chinese, I, I did violin. So I was in the orchestra three times a week and I was in the choir. So quite involved musically. And yeah, that's about it. Um, sports wise, you know, I did hockey, badminton, tried a bit of everything. As Lucy finished school, she started thinking about what she wanted to do in life. She applied for universities around the world, however decided that she would move to Melbourne, and her parents decided to move across as well. I actually applied for both engineering and commerce, and um, I got into both, but in terms of career-wise, I always wanted to go into finance. I was very interested in engineering because I was like hooked on um, Discovery Channel and for like a really long time. (laughs) And I just wanted to, um, I always liked experimenting with things. 
but I think just the in terms of you know、um, being Asian and a girl, somehow commerce made a little bit more sense. But I think it, it all worked out because it doesn't really matter.、Um, I'm working with you know. Up to a hundred engineers now,、uh, Air, Air Wallets, and I still get to be part of things that engineers do. I just, I'm just not the one personally getting hands-on and doing it. And it was during this time at the University of Melbourne that Lucy met some older students who would eventually become her co-founders at Air Wallets. Although at the time, she had no idea that they would ever end up working together. So I actually met my、uh, one of our co-founder Max、uh, through a friend. So he was at、uh, the architecture faculty.、Um, I was at commerce, and he went to high school with our CTO, who went to uni with our CEO. <laughs> so <laughs> someone's like everyone's connected in some way. When Lucy finished university in late 2012, she landed her first job, working for the biggest investment bank in China. I did a lot of internships when I was at uni,、um, so they were all with、uh, banks or securities trading companies. And I think the first job was、uh, like a full-time job was with CICC, which is a joint venture bank、uh, in China, the biggest investment bank in China. Because we were educated very heavily on how many IPOs we did and you know all of those things. I think real world is definitely. Different to、um, what you learn on textbooks, but、uh, the good thing about、um, my master's degree is actually quite、uh, it's not it's quite case studies based rather than learning a lot of the theories. And even when I was in uni, I did a little bit of stock trading myself.、Um, so it was actually quite easy to、uh, get the gist of things, and you know. And the market was doing well when I first started the job, so、um, yeah, it was everything's just happening very quickly in China.、Um, so it was a lot of fun, I think. So this is this is kind of like in the midst of this sort of like massive boom that's happened in consumer electronics and things like that, and China is playing like this pivotal role in a、yeah. lot of these companies. What? Did your sort of role entail? What were you doing? I was an investment consultant.、Um, my daily job would be trying to advise and also help my clients, corporate or individuals,、uh, make not so much trading decisions, but how to structure their portfolios, their investments better.、Um, so a lot of my clients were actually already listed. Um, so they would try to better structure their,、um, you know, shares because a lot of them are, cannot be liquidated. So they are already、uh, they reduce restricted shares per se. So they try to get liquidity out of it.、Um, they try to, you know,、um, increase the efficiency of things. So、um, yeah, that took up I guess most of my.、Um, Time, and also I had some、um, individual clients who were looking to make investments.、Uh, so I think、uh, both within China and overseas. When you went to New Zealand, you said like it was quite a different experience、um, going to New Zealand, and you lived in New Zealand for quite a bit of time, and also in Australia, which、mm-hmm. don't have that same kind of like population density <laughs> that you experience in China. What was it? What was it like? You know, like at a personal level, going back into that busyness of of China and you know Hong Kong and Shanghai, etc. I wouldn't lie. I actually enjoy living in Shanghai a lot、um, for different. I think I enjoy living in Melbourne and Shanghai, but for different reasons. So Shanghai, you get like super fast internet shopping. Everything gets delivered the next day.、Um, almost everything you want to do can be done in an app or on your mobile phone. But Melbourne, you get that you know shopping at the market, you know brunch with your friends, very very good coffee.、Um, so it's kind of different lifestyle, and I think.、Um, You know, as I travel a lot these days, I actually enjoy having a bit of both.、Um, but、uh, I think, you know, back in the days, you know, when I was a kid, I think kids adapt very quickly. So they just live in whatever environment you throw them at,、uh, into. Yeah. So I, I think 
Population-wise, definitely Shanghai has the population of the entire Australia, if not more, and Hong Kong uh, equally, even more like dense in terms of you know everyone. If you go to our sh-、uh, Hong Kong office, you'll see like these massive apartment buildings all very very close to each other. But yeah, I I think personally I don't mind it、um, unless I'm like. Super、um, busy all the time. Then probably I said,、oh, I feel like going back to Melbourne for a break. Now around 2015, Lucy got married and decided it was time to take a mid-career break. Both her and her husband wanted to get away from the busyness of Shanghai, so they started travelling so they could see the world. And it was on this journey that Lucy became involved in Airwallex. We went to、uh, so Scandinavia, so we went to Sweden, Norway,、uh, Denmark, and then we went to Japan, and then we ended up in Melbourne visiting my parents. And two of our co-founders at that time opened a cafe、um, in Docklands, and、uh, I was visiting Max almost. You know, every afternoon because obviously I was on holiday, but he's not, and he was working at the cafe, and we were talking, and then Jack, they were co-owners of that cafe, would come in at three p.m. while he was still working, you know, <laughs> and、um, yeah, and we just got chatting about the idea that Jack was having, and that's I guess how Airwallex started. And the idea was to to fix some of the, like the frustrations they were having with、um, like payments around the business. So, what was it that was so frustrating about the way that business transactions were happening? All of us were working in sort of the institutional banking sector of the bank,、um, and we don't tend to experience what it is like to be a smaller business or you know a corporate. Like as an individual, I think. I know there are certain hidden costs and all of those things,、um, you know, with your credit card, with your, you know, FX. You know, going back to my, you know, Scandinavian trip, we had to exchange money all the time every time we go to a new country, and I, I see myself being ripped off because my cash just keeps on <laughs>、um, <laughs> decreasing. And I think when they opened the cafe, they, they all of a sudden realized, oh my god, as a Small business, you you sort of experience these frustrations as well because you don't get the level of service a bigger corporate would.、Um, you know, you don't really have a banker that's sort of helping you twenty four seven. You the price you get is pretty much the same as an individual, but it is different because. You're running a business, and you have to care about your PNL. You have to look at, you know, the amount of money you make, and if it's, you know, you're losing five percent on FX, that's probably half of your profit margin. So I think around that time, TransferWise was into their second or third year, and they were do- only doing individuals、um, in the UK. And we thought it's actually quite interesting.、Um, there are still things that. You can do、um, in terms of foreign exchange,、uh, even though it's a very commoditized sort of financial product. So we were thinking, ah,、oh, you know, we, we probably can do like a foreign exchange for businesses, but then you don't want to be a broker because there's really no, you know, in, like innovation in in that. So. You know, we we explored you know payments because payments will require you to have、uh, certain scenarios and、uh, certain cases where there's a user case. So that's how our first、uh, product or idea started. The founders started the process of putting their ideas into action, but to make any progress on a concept in the foreign exchange market, Lucy says they had to go all in from the start. We agreed very early on that if we are gonna do it, we have to 100% or 200% be involved in it. Well, we didn't want to be the startup that, you know, everyone still had a very comfortable full-time job, but sort of doing it on the side on the weekend or you know. So、um, I was already unemployed, so it wasn't a very hard decision for me. But、um, from when we incorporated our company to everyone quitting, it was only like one or two weeks. Uh, so Jack Zhen is our CEO. Our CTO is Xu Jing. His last name is Dai. And Max is uh, our um, other co-founder, who's been the firefighter of the business, like always being thrown into、uh, areas where it's the most difficult, the most challenging.、Um, so currently, he's、uh, managing our customer success team. 
One of the difficult things when starting any business is figuring out things like equity, splits, mm-hmm. et, et cetera. How did you all decide on splitting up your company amongst yourselves? Was it just an equal <laughs> split, like everyone got 25% or like how did you decide uh, on those things? I can't give you the exact percentages, but sure. it's, we didn't uh, – I don't think we spent a lot of time on this, mm-hmm. but it's not a equal split and you don't want it to be, trust me, like – from experience or from my conversations with other um, companies, I think OVCs, they don't tend to like when companies are equally split. Why is that? Uh, I think it's just down the track, you still want to have one slightly more dominant person. It, just in terms of voting powers and you know how terms are negotiated, not so much on how you actually think. I don't think it affects how we do things or how we think, but um, on paper, there needs to be one person who is, I guess, more than others. And how did you decide who does what in those early days? <laughs> like, yeah, how did you split up the tasks that needed to be done? So um, our first employee or fifth co-founder is actually um, uh, one of Jack's ex-colleagues. So he's also a software engineer. So we ended up with three software engineers, Max and myself. Um, So obviously the three of them would be very focused on software development, the architecture. And then we realized, no, Jack cannot like spend his time coding otherwise you know he gets too involved in it and then he doesn't do anything else (laughs) Um, so then uh, Jack even though he's a software engineer decided to um, take more on the you know fundraising the business uh, you know hiring you cannot imagine how time consuming hiring is in the early days like we would be interviewing from you know nine to like five and that was your day and uh, for myself, um, you know, I was managing the finance, um, getting everything set up, um, bank accounts, you know, again, how difficult it is to be a small business mm. and have like bank accounts. And um, we knew that we needed, um, you know, multiple entities as well, because we're, you know, running a global business by default. You can't really be a cross-border payment business if you don't have other entities and other bank accounts, right? So um, it was very administrative and we had to do all the PowerPoints, Excels, projections, uh, all of those things. So I don't think we really had a split other than people who can write software and people who can't. Lucy is highly organised, and so that left her doing a lot of the operational setup while the others in her team were focused on coding. But to really stamp their mark on the industry, they needed to raise money to build a team. We actually got our first VC investment pretty early on, uh, so only two or three months after we started. And the seed investment was, uh, I guess, invested by myself and the other co-founders. And yes, our pre-A was sort of January, February of 2016, so only two months after we started. You said hiring was sort of like challenging in those early days. Um, How are you thinking about hiring as like a brand new team building this brand new service? How did you know like who to bring on to the team? I think we just first we started with our network. Mm -hmm. Um, So people we knew, people who uh, we know are good and... Uh, it's always easier to convince people to join when there's a trust relationship um, already there. Um, but uh, obviously, you know, like when we're hiring our compliance manager and all those uh, positions where we don't actually know anyone, then we had to go through recruiter, which could have been expensive, but um, we didn't have an HR and we had a very, very small office. So it's actually quite difficult to get people from um, you know bigger companies or banks where or pretty much all of our target candidates are how long did it take uh, to actually get the product to an MVP stage where you could actually 
put it out in the market to customers? We had our first sort of product after about six, seven months, so mid-2016. But that product no longer exists now <laughs> because, <laughs> sure. um, you know, after releasing it, we thought, oh, you know, this is probably not good enough. And also, we probably didn't get our product market fit right the first time. So instead of actually going to the very small businesses, um, which that product was targeted at, um, we started doing uh, API solutions for larger uh, internet companies and, uh, you know, enterprise. I don't like to say enterprise, but, you know, much bigger companies. Our product was launched, you know, like... 18 months later. So uh, beginning of 2018, we started to get uh, the real traction from um, clients at that time, and which proved this time we got it right, <laughs> you know, sort right. of got it right. Now, you know, 12 months later, we are revisiting our SME uh, solution, and uh, we now have, a, you know, MVP, or actually it's a pretty comprehensive product to be released to the market for the smaller clients as well. Okay, so the first so the first product was targeted at those smaller companies, yeah. but you put it out in the market and it, it wasn't successful and you or you just weren't getting people signing up. Like what was the issue? I think a lot of people signed up, but the issue at that time was that uh, AML and a lot of KYC, so what we call um, compliance issues. So with the smaller the business are, the, everyone's a little bit different. Um, they're all small businesses. They all have different requirements. We didn't have a customer support team. Um, you know, the operations team was tiny. So it's very difficult to cater to everyone's needs and also follow up on the compliance requirements, getting the volume through. I can give you an example, like a small business might have regular transactions, you know, every month, every quarter throughout the year for a fixed amount. But compare that to our API client um, of a, say, marketplace e-commerce website that could be transacting, you know, 10 times more than their monthly volume 10 months ago. So uh, business grow more quickly at scale when there are... um, you know, much larger or mm-hmm. when you get it right, right? Like we're not going after the really traditional sort of, you know, importing, exporting businesses. Um, instead, we're going after the like the newer business models, um, you know, companies that really need that support system in place for them to grow their business overseas. Right, like yeah. SaaS companies and, and yeah, things like SaaS, that. Yeah, um, SaaS, it's very marketplace, e-commerce uh very interesting live streaming, um, you know, uh, companies that try to replicate their business model in uh, multiple countries, but have difficulties doing so because of the lack of payment infrastructure. At what point did you realize that, um, you know, that first product that you built was not the thing that you needed to pursue, that you needed to sort of like evolve this towards bigger companies like was this was this something that you noticed that where because that's it like that seems like a very like different direction to take the company and I'm sure you know you'd put months and months of work into this one thing and then to have it not perform in the way that you wanted I think that what we did well was we had a very good um, architecture or network in place in the first place so even though the application interface was not good enough. We didn't even, I think we personally didn't even like that product very much. We just tried to release something for the sake of it. Um, But we were still able to continue um, use our infrastructure, the network that we built, the banking relationship, um, all of those things. It's just the, you know, the application was different. And we always want to do, do an API solution because it's the stickiness and, you know, the, the, it's a, a lot bigger than a web app, right? Not everyone has the technical resource to, you know, integrate with us. And also, you know, we can't just be an API company. A lot of companies want to move quickly and they wanted to have an, you know, manual way of doing things, um, which is why we then went back to our first product, we changed it to something that is more adaptable, more flexible, and more user-friendly. 
let's talk about trust. Yeah. Um, because trust is like a really big factor when it comes to finance companies. The bigger the company <laughs> is that you're trying to deal with, uh, you know, the more important it is to have the trust that you're going to be able to, you know, facilitate these transactions in a way where they're not going to lose their money, et cetera. And mm-hmm. as a new company, that can that could be a really mm-hmm. difficult thing. Um, so how, how did you go about actually building trust with these uh, more enterprise businesses? And like, what was your pitch to them? Around our Series A time. So we took investments from uh, Tencent and Sequoia China. So that's around when we really started to, uh, you know, people begin to realize, oh, you know, you're a serious company. You're not just a startup. Because startups in in financial services is actually not a very positive term. Um, you know, people would much rather go for safer options or, you know, existing banking relationships that they would have. And um, we participated in MasterCard Start Pass. I think it was to end of 2016 and they also became an investor in us a minor investor in us in Series A so we really used our you know investors as a you know way of demonstrating that you know we, we are serious about what we're doing and um, you know everything we do is very safe um, you know you don't need to actually see us as someone who's just you know going to take your money and go away um, but we still struggle with it up till today. Um, better now than before. Um, it's just, I guess, demonstrating that you have the licenses. Um, we were quite lucky that we got our AFSL very early on. And then we uh, started applying for licenses in different countries, building up our, you know, compliance team, legal team, um, doing our audits. You know, these are all very boring, but very necessary things. Yeah, and you know, clients talk to each other, so you know, you you want to have that good word of mouth between the key decision makers. But it's also very important to have, especially dealing with like these larger uh, clients, to have a champion within their business who would actually believe in what you're doing, and also um, who would actually spend the time and effort championing your 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 product. Because um, you know, even you know, internet companies, tech companies, they will have different uh, processes and procedures for onboarding different uh, suppliers, and also using new systems. And you know, finance guys might really like us, but then the tech team are like, "Oh no, we don't have time." <laughs> so, so it's actually working out. You know, how you can get someone uh, senior enough in the business to actually support you, and you know, getting everything there for you. Coming up after the break, Airwallex continues the process of building trust and in doing so becomes a unicorn. This is Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson. Lucy and the team at Airwallex started raising money early in their startup life. But the process of actually getting investors on board is never easy. Despite having a great pitch deck, Lucy says investors really didn't understand how the company was going to achieve their goals. So starting from pre-A, I think definitely our business model was something that's interesting to the VCs. Um, we ha- our CTO was using this super complicated algorithm, and it, you know, it just looks very you know high tech and fancy. Um, and we would do demos on on, on his computer screen. But um, so it was interesting to the VCs, but they didn't really understand what's so special, or you know whether this actually can be done because it will require a lot of resources and you know like a lot of money invested it's not something that you can get started start earning money and then grow it's something that you just have to make a lot of upfront investment like i said you know it was like two years before we even had like real meaningful transactions so Definitely, I think in at least the very first round, it was difficult. Um, but we were probably 
one of the only f- very few B2B payment companies in right. existence at that time. Um, you know, there was, you know, a lot of other consumer remittance, uh, you know, uh, like credit card acquiring businesses, but like only B2B payments, probably only the like more traditional companies were doing it. So they, it was interesting to them and they was like, oh, probably this is an industry or sector that we want to make a bet on because the you know industry is big enough. There is definitely demand for it and nobody has really nailed it properly yet. Mm-hmm. So um, for them, I think it was a bet on the industry as well as on our team to really, you know, get get it done. Was there a point where you where you realized that actually this is starting to gain meaningful traction? I think that we realized, you know, that, that there was traction, you know, very quickly after we properly, you know, reorganized our um, uh, and also how we sell is actually quite important as well because you're taking sort of existing financial products but you do like you you're providing the end-to-end solution you're trying to convince the client this is what you need rather than you know integrating with four or five different systems banks you know we can do end-to-end for you um but you have to be willing to you know invest the resources into integrating with us and sometimes that's actually a quite hard decision for them but once you know we, we got the first few clients on board we quickly realized, you know, like how fast API clients can grow compared to just manually processing payments. Um, You know, take uh, one of our clients as an example. They used to do swift payments for every single university payments. Uh, So, sorry, going backwards. Um, they, They are a tuition payment service provider. So they will help Chinese students pay for their university fees overseas. And they used to, you know, have someone sitting at the bank's um, counter and just filling in forms, dealing with emergencies and uh, making the payments uh, via Swift. And you can, it's like thousands of students need to pay their tuition fees, especially during the peak seasons of like, you know, August or September. So they had someone like physically sitting in the bank. Yeah, because if there is an issue, um, you can still do it with internet banking. But if there's Mm -hmm. an issue, obviously you need to call the bank and then they need to figure out what's wrong, right? So it's much easier just to have someone sitting there. Um, <laughs> even if you have 1% failure in your payments, that's, you know, say 10 or 100 out of thousands of students. So the solution we provide them is batch. So they could upload everything onto our system or um, power through us through our API to us and we will process it for them. Um, we will deal with the compliance issues if, you know, the, the banks ask. And also um, the success rate was just a lot higher. And yeah, so, you know, that's tuition payments. You, you're looking at like thousands of dollars or like 10, you know, like tens, twenties, thousands. Um, but taking another extreme example is like live streaming is usually typically like $5 or $10 payments, which doesn't really make sense for the company to process um, via any sort of banking uh, product because the SWIFT fees or um, the, the, the cross-border payment fees would be you know around $50. So they can't just five, process $5 because it's otherwise going to be negative $45. Mm. Um, one of the you know things infrastructure side things that we built on was local payments. So say we're both in Australia and I pay you, obviously it's free for you know um, individuals and businesses as well. But if I'm in China and I pay you, obviously I have to pay a cross border fee. So uh, airport service would be you know I move. I aggregate all of my Chinese payments to Australia, mm-hmm. and then I would go through local payments. So in that sense, I can make you know five dollars, ten dollars, because for me, you know, the, everything is batched, and there's a routing, and um, going through local is you know much cheaper and faster and more guaranteed. Um, and yeah, so you know, we definitely saw a huge demand in these new business models, and obviously the banks. I'm sure would love to solve it for them, but um, it just wouldn't happen as quickly as we would, um, you know, execute things. 
Airwallex raised $3 million US dollars in their seed round in July of 2016, and through 2017, raised a Series A of $13 million in May, followed by an additional $6 million in December. And all that cash was used to help establish themselves as a global player. Because when it comes to processing foreign transactions, you have to think globally from day one. When you're thinking about a business in sort of like the global perspective and you have to think about it inherently globally, how does that affect the way that you go about like building out the teams um, for the business? And how how do you think about where people need to be located and what area, what countries they need to focus on? For us, I think, you know, we definitely thought that having a UK or general EU license would be important. And in terms of talent, I, you know, UK is still leading in terms of payments. You know, uh, most of the, you know, payment startups are in the UK and all of the um, big the banks um, are there. So I think talent is definitely one area to consider when you're trying to open up an office. Um, and... Uh, most of the you know regulators will require us to have a physical office, physical entity, a local director most likely, and a local compliance officer in that area. Um, so um, if sometimes we will hire the compliance prior to the application of the license or during the process to show that you know we're very serious about what we're doing. Um, some countries do allow you to have your compliance officer overseas, but most likely, you know, you need someone on the ground. And also um, in terms of like localization strategies, having someone who know the market is very important. Um, so we can send as many people as we want from, you know, headquarter or other offices, but you will still need someone, um, you know, there who really uh, knows the people um, in the area. You know, um, our head of uh, Euro expansion is X transferwise <laughs> So, you know, you have to understand it's very difficult for people to work in the satellite office because they're far away from everyone else. Um, when they onboard people, it's only a few people in, I don't know, like a shared office. Sometimes, you know, six or 12 months or even like 18 months down the track, you still only have three to five people. Right. So you really need someone who believes in your vision and also very passionate about what you're doing. Um, otherwise, you probably see a lot of turnover or, you know, the, the turnover. It's just a lot of churn and it's not very good for the business. So for us, we at the moment, we would... Um, uh, onboard people in a bigger office if they don't have a lot of senior people in that office. Right. So so you want to get them onboarded in uh, in one of your main offices so that they can really yeah. understand like the culture of the company yeah, exactly. and then take that with yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, if we hire someone in the US, we will have them spend you know two weeks in our Shanghai office, uh, visit our Melbourne office as well, get to know everyone. Um, so you, it's not just another name you see on. Slack, because um, it's uh, you put the names to the faces. Um, you know, you learn about the culture, the business before you return to the office that you are stationed at. That helped, and also try to onboard more than one person at a time if it's a very small office. Even for us in Melbourne at that time, you know, uh, like if we have two or three guys starting on the same day, it's quite, you know, it's just lot more people than him starting by himself Um, and you know you get that support and you know the the people are I think culturally feeling more involved. Airwallex now has eight offices around the world and more than 270 staff and as the business has grown so has a requirement for which employees they bring into the company. We still have a lot of our very early employees with us. The type of people that we look for or we, or we work well with has never really changed. But obviously you want people who can grow with the business. So you, you might find that, you know, that the, supposedly the senior management of your founding sort of team is probably down the track not suitable anymore so you will want to hire people either above or below them so it's, it's been a 
quite difficult decision or we, we spend a little bit of time working out that structure. But in terms of personality, I think people who work well in a startup sense is always, you know, someone who's very hardworking, who takes ownership of what they want to do. And, you know, generally a very good communicator because communication is quite chaotic when you have eight offices and so many people and you don't know everyone's name, right? So that hasn't really changed. But we did have periods of high turnover, especially when we are very close to, you know, uh, project deadlines or when we're sort of pivoting but not really pivoting and you know like the, we've had turnovers especially when we hire people from a traditional banking right know. do they sort of like coming from a traditional background then somewhat struggle to deal with the pace of change in your business the pace of change lack of structure um and also like sometimes we bring someone who's very very senior who are just too far away from the actions um, right. in their previous jobs. Um, like, you know, people tell you, you when you're like a lot bigger, you need someone who professionally managed the business or um, managed the team. But then you find that they're not culturally good fit with your existing team. People join startups for a reason. They want to get things done. They don't like or they don't um, work well in an environment where there's, you know, just lots of, uh, unnecessary politics, but you can't really avoid um, being like once you're bigger, you can't avoid structure and you can't avoid um, putting in processes. And we're running a you know finance related business, so of course there's you know auditing requirements, governance, you know all those boring but you know necessary things. You you have to balance business growth, business growth with you know, all those boring stuff, because otherwise you will never get anything done. And it was 2018 where Airwallex really started to grow, with an $80 million funding round in July, followed by a further $100 million in March of 2019, bringing their total investment to more than $200 million US dollars, making them a unicorn, a company valued at more than $1 billion, which is a huge feat considering that Airwallex is less than four years old. When you're looking to raise money, how, how did you decide, like, when is the right time to raise? People ask me that question or ask us that question all the time, but I think for the Airwallex team, we were just always very focused on what we're doing rather than worrying about, you know, how should we, you know, how to time your fundraising. I think... You want to time it as, uh, you know, close to your business needs as possible, but sometimes it's not always according to what you want. You know, you have to recognize there's time for due diligence, there's time, you know, for, you know, trying to find the right investor or talk to the investors. It's just too time consuming and towards I think series B, series C, we just let it happen when, you know, f- for example, series B, we were going to raise it a lot a, a few months later mm-hmm. than when we um, actually did it. But for us, you know, we were growing our API product, we needed money for, you know, uh, hiring more people. So, you know, our existing investors just basically say, you know, we can support you. And that's how it happened. And having that your existing investors there to provide the support is actually quite validating because it saves you time from, you know, going out to the market again, doing all the pitching. And we sort of stopped doing that um, after Series B because it's just, you know, we want to be focused on what we're doing. You can just go back to that existing investor pool and say, hey, we want to do this. We need more money. Can you help us? Because I think even in the earlier days, we it's very you can do as many forecasts as you want. Like you can make the spreadsheets really pretty, and you can say, "Oh, this is exactly how much I need in a year." But that's not how it works. Because you know, like you could be seeing new business opportunities, and you could be you know uh, spending more than you anticipated. You could be making more than you anticipated. So it's really. Um, 
having that momentum going and not be like, oh my god, I'm running out of money, or your lack of cash is slowing down your growth. Um, that's probably one of the things you want to avoid. But um, raising too much when you don't actually need it is sort of still damaging to the you know cap table and you know also to incoming investors because um, when they give you money they expect you to spend it on business growth right sure. it, they don't actually want the money to be just sitting there in the bank forever yeah, sure. <laughs> it makes you feel safe but it also means you're not growing quickly enough as we mentioned earlier trust is a really important issue when dealing with any kind of financial services business and lucy says that raising all that cash and becoming a so-called unicorn has been incredibly important in showing validation for their concept. It provides a level of trust for businesses that they deal with. However, in the world of banking, they are still fighting an upward battle because they are still relatively small compared to some of the existing players. I think with in terms of banking or you know, uh, in terms of partnerships, it changes the dynamics in the sense that you know they, they realize you have it's a validation. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking to you know traditional companies or you know some of the financial institutions, a lot of the times they still don't really get this fundraising idea, even though there are so many tech companies and it's like a VC sort of thing is very popular these days a lot of times regulators still don't really understand and um, partners sometimes you know they try to figure out what does this actually mean it's like it's a title right but or a label people put on you but you know they don't really get what it actually means from a business perspective because they will still be looking at revenue they will still be looking at um capital structure and they will be like why do you have so many you know um you know, shareholders and, and then they just try to do like due diligence on your shareholders and we actually had a case of scenario when they were asking for the passport of pony mine and we're like sorry i can't get that for you <laughs> um yeah so you still run into like different problems every day, um, but definitely, you know, it's uh, people are quite buzzed about um, unicorn status and all of those things. For us internally, it's good from a spirit uh, team spirit point of view. Um, you know, we had a little mini celebration, but other than that, for us, you know, it's just uh, raising money for business growth. It's not really anything more than that. Are you done raising or? We don't know. You don't know. (laughs) We don't know. Do do you think there's too much of a focus on, you know, needing to raise capital? Because Um, like, and once you take it on, you kind of have to keep going, right, to sustain that. um, I think, you know, we, we get asked a lot about fundraising when it's actually not something that we even spend a tenth of our time on. Um, at um, you know, from an everyday perspective, and Jack always said, "Oh, you know, it's like I'll be so happy one day when I don't have to do it personally." Um, we don't spend as much time on it as we used to. Um, we have our team, um, you know, like uh, legal counsels and also our finance team helping us. Whereas, you know, in the early days, we had to do all the number crunching and all the due diligence ourselves. Um, so for and we still get, you know, like. I still remember Series A, we were like getting the money from Tencent and I was like, uh, we actually checked our bank balance when they said they, you know, transfer us the money. But whereas now we're just like, oh, it happened. Right. <laughs> you, you, were sit- you were sitting there waiting like, oh, they say they're going to send the money to me. I'm going <laughs> to. Whereas, yeah, now it's like we probably forgot to check it and then we're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hang on. So you, you forgot to check that like $100 million just like turn up in your bank account well I, I just think we wouldn't be watching it as closely as we used to <laughs> sure. um, you know how like they, they say you know traders don't really feel money um, they, they feel more like it's, it's just numbers to them once you get too emotionally attached to the sense that it's you know capital or money you, you sort of uh, your emotions change and you know how you see things change so yeah for us it's just numbers
Coming up after the break, Lucy shares her tips for tackling the Chinese market and how explosive growth can affect the way you build a team. This is Building a Unicorn, I'm Christopher Lawson. Airwallex has been going from strength to strength, and they recently decided to move their official headquarters from Melbourne across to Hong Kong. A lot of their clients are in Hong Kong and China, so they wanted to be as close to their big clients as they can. You're all, you know, from China, mm-hmm. and so you understand the Chinese the Chinese market in a lot deeper way than many other companies understand. It's a market that a lot of big US-based companies, uh, big Australian companies really struggle to deal with. What is it about China that many companies get wrong? I think a lot of people recognize that there's cultural difference, but they don't change the way they operate when they... Uh, open up their Chinese office. So uh, a lot of the complaints I get from uh, people working for US or European companies are every decision is made by headquarters, which is actually why I don't like this headquarter title. Because for us, it's, you know, it's not really about where everything is. And you know, we are a global business. We're supposed to be everywhere. And our strategy is supposed to be localized for different markets. But um, from a vision and you know, from a company operations perspective, we should be global. We should have that global mindset. But um, for some of the much bigger companies that try to target the Chinese or Asian market, um, a lot of decisions, a lot of the things are you know still very much centralized, and I think that's one of the issues. And I understand why it is that way because you know you still you don't want like you you don't want the local markets to be doing their own thing and you know you're one company right you have to have that control, um, which is I think why companies like ours exist and where company like them exist is it's not really one or the other it's more like you know who does what better and how you can work together so we're working with some of the u.s based companies tech companies or non-tech companies on their um chinese or like asian strategies and how to get it done better and you know they're helping us with other markets as well because you, you can only stretch yourself so thin you can't you can't risk you know like being too spread out and not focused on what you, you know, the priorities, there has to be a list. So in some ways, um, like companies that are going into China, mm-hmm. like it's important to think about that kind of like de- almost decentralized mm-hmm. um strategy because of the requirements of the local market is that it's not just china i think like if you take southeast asia as another example every country is different um you know people see as one region but the regulations are different languages are different uh, currencies are different so uh, you you can't like say you know i see asia as one region and i just this is my asian you know like sort of way of doing things as as every market is just too different like mm. and that's one of the like things that we spend the most time on is you know integrating into the local system complying with the local regulations and having the local people there to really um you know tell us what is what needs to be done differently. Um, there's no such thing as one size fit all. And you can't, like, just because one thing worked in one market doesn't mean it's going to work in another market. How important is it, like, especially in Asia, mm-hmm. how important is it to actually have people on the ground in those countries for a business like yours? You don't necessarily need people there but you needed them to understand what is going on there right. and also uh, be within, you know, close proximity to what is happening. And, you know, it's because 
especially in Asia, I think face-to-face uh, meetings are very important. Jack and I used to just fly over to uh, somewhere to meet the banks or meet the regulators because you know, they don't really tend to go for the emails and, um, you know, it's much faster to explain things um, when and build on a trust when you, you meet them. Yeah, and also there is still some, I think, like differences in perception of Chinese. Um, I don't think Chinese people work differently to, um, you know, Americans or Australians, as most of the founders I know um, of tech companies are, you know, well-educated and they all went to like U.S. European like universities. So I don't think there is a difference on how tech companies operate. Um, It's thinking about that scale and also you're looking at a market of billions rather than millions that sometimes a lot of companies struggle they're like we'll have this five-year plan i'm like no, a chinese company will do it in six months and crush you so you know there is capital in the market to support these fast-growing companies and just things just move you know beyond imagination like uh, you know, there's coffee shops will, op- will have a strategy of opening 100 shops in a month. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not very sustainable. Like it's, you know, like you might say, oh, no, that's probably not going to work, but that's what's happening. So, you know, your strategies need to change. Building a company that caters to explosive growth also requires a different mindset when hiring. You're not only having to think about building your team, but having the right processes in place that allows that team to scale rapidly. And Lucy says building a global business also highlights differences in how different countries approach rapid expansion. I think uh, for us, you know, we definitely did a very good job of having a, hiring a good HR business partner early on that made a lot of difference on, you know, um, our hiring strategies and also being able to hire fast enough um, is one of the things that we, we constantly try to nail at because, you know, you can grow as fast as you can, but you can't if you don't have enough people. Sure. And you're always fighting with, you know, competing with um, other internet companies. And sure, we're a unicorn, but like there are like so many other unicorns in China and doing the interesting things. And there's also a cultural difference from an engineering perspective because we tend to find that uh, Silicon Valley or you know Australian or you know London developers are more focused on asking why and you know structuring things perfectly to make it you know sustainable make it you know, secure um, you know like it's a very engineering heavy mindset but it's a good thing don't get me wrong but when you're moving in the Asian market that's just too much planning is not going to be good for um, growth and uh, you know on the other end of things like you know we have a lot of Chinese developers not asking why and just doing things and sometimes it hurts the business because you, you might not have done your QA process properly you might have released something without your you know <laughs> approval so And that's a very consumer-based sort of product development as well because, you know, you could have an app and they could be changing things on the background without you noticing. But for a business product, it's everything is very noticeable. And so, yeah, um, coming back to that, you know, how do you grow quickly? It's it's all about people and having the right people in place um, makes a lot of difference. And having a balance between, you know, getting things perfect and releasing things fast enough. Do you struggle to get enough people? Yes, we definitely do. Um, We always had very high standards in our hiring. Even recruiters are like, some of the recruiters are even refusing to work with us now because um, our process for, you know, like even hiring a junior developer is like code test, interview with like senior engineer, we interview with CTO. And uh, I think we're still at a phase where uh, the founders can personally ensure that, you know, we, we do the final interviews and uh, not all of us, but at least with one of us um, to make sure that, you know, like there is a good 
Kotrofin and as well as, you know, from a professional experience perspective, they match what we are looking for. Um, not sure how long that's going to go for, but we hope for as long as possible because what's worse than not having enough people is firing people and also, you know, getting the turnover and, you know, like people leaving during probation because then you have to go through the whole process again. Do you, do you remember like your first conversation that you had to have with someone to say like, I'm sorry, but you're not a great fit? I think people know when they're not a good fit. It's not like, at least the conversations I've had, as soon as we sat down, I think the person knows what I'm going to say. And it's just a matter of working out, you know, where people are at, you know, and also how to, you know, both move on because, you know, people don't want to stay where they're not a good fit either. Definitely a difficult conversation. <laughs> banking, uh, banking, and fi- like finance industries in um, in many countries are kind of broken. Mm-hmm. You know, in the US, for instance, people still send a lot of checks um, for B two B transactions. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's something that I personally find incredibly frustrating when I like have that conversation with a company and they're like, "No, we pay by check," <laughs> and I'm like, "We don't accept checks. Like, that's not a thing that we do anymore." But um, like, as you expand your business and yep. you're looking at the UK and Europe and you're looking at um, the US, are you noticing any sort of like trends in the types of conversations that you're having with? people in those markets where processes haven't really evolved in the same way that they have in in Asia, in countries like Australia, where payments happen digitally yeah. all the time. So I think for um, Asia, it's quite interesting that people never really used credit cards. So right. people just jumped from cash all the way to e-payments. Okay. It's like we never really... I think at least like my parents' generation or um, people older than me probably never really consistently used cards. Their cards are all now or bi- binded to their Apple Pay or you know their WeChat Pay or AliPay. They're they're sort of combined e payments with card payments. Um, whereas in the like coming a check and you know all of those things it's definitely something that our co- asian customers struggle with it's like what is a check like <laughs> let alone like credit cards because some of the credit cards they issue in uh china or um you know southeast asia doesn't really work in the u.s because right. um, the card processing um thing yeah it's it's a very complicated system and an old system as well. So when we're talking with, you know, Visa and MasterCard, they even themselves are trying to reinvent that whole process and trying to, you know, change the rules of how they process payments because it's just not, you know, fit for globalization or it's not fit for digitalization. And they they are very used to like people just, you know, Australian using an Australian card in Australia, but that's not the case anymore. And Europe is actually a very interesting market as well. Like you would think that e-payments is everywhere, like it's cardless, it's cashless, but actually it's not. Um, like, um, but banks are trying to be more progressive about you know pushing people onto platforms and also pushing people to use digital payments. And the way you do it is not actually just to say, oh, it's easier to pay. But to give an example, how people started using WeChat Pay in China is because everyone sends, you know, red packets or what we call like, you know, money to people during Chinese New Year. Sure. And WeChat Pay launched this, you know, uh, like function where you can easily send some money to your relatives or friends. And people would get very excited if you send them like $5 on WeChat. <laughs> and that's how it all started. And, you know, um, the Chinese Uber Didi would uh, give coupons to all of the WeChat Pay users. So people would bind their WeChat Pay to their Didi account. And all of a sudden, you, you, you sort of foster this user behavior that is, you know, people just get used to it. I think, you know, the way like Europe and US are trying to do it is also, you know, like enable e-payments for your utility bills or enable, you know, cardless uh, metro rides, subway rides. So it has to be something that's linked to their everyday life. 
and even for business, it's the same. So you know, direct debit or you know something that's related to how they do the business. Otherwise, you know, you might be stuck in a cycle where oh, we don't take you know,、yeah. you know, cards or we don't take e-payments and we only take checks. So it's like those type of things, or I only pay with checks. So the user behavior has to be built up、um, over time, and yeah. So、uh, we take, we get this all the time, like、mm. the payments rolling out, but then people actually don't using it, are not using it because you know they're just not something they're used to. Like that's a difficult thing to to change, like、yeah. to change like the fundamental behavior of how businesses operate, because that's what it requires.、Yeah. Because people are used to doing things one way, and then yeah, I think well, you know any startup that changes behavior is one that will do very well.、Um, you know, even if it's something that's like a tiny thing that is different. You really like a very young company. <laughs> yes.、Um, you, Essentially, three and a bit、mm. years into your journey, when you look at everything that you've achieved so far, how do you feel? Honestly, it doesn't feel like three and a half years.、Uh, it feels more like a ten years journey.、Um, it's definitely quite amazing to look back and think that you know we we were only a four or five people company three years ago. We're very grateful that you know most of our First few employees are still with us, so you know, looking back at the photos and also like how young everyone looked, it was like startup definitely makes you look older,、um, too tiring. But、um, I think we don't spend that much time looking back at things unless you know we hit those. Milestones, and then like it's end of the year, and people get emotional. <laughs> and you,、uh, but I think we feel very lucky.、Um, you know, you need a bit of luck when you're running a startup and you when you're you know starting something new.、Um, but you know, on top of luck, it's just working as hard as you can and be very focused on what you're trying to achieve. Thanks to Lucy Liu for taking the time to speak with me for this story. Building a Unicorn is a Lawson Media production. You can find out more about the show or get episode transcripts at our website, buildingyourunicorn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, with production work by Jasmine Mee Lee. Our theme music is by Nick Buchanan, with other music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Mixing and sound design by James Parkinson, and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. And if you love this episode, it would really help us out if you could share it with a couple of friends. Personal connections are the best way to build an audience that makes the show more sustainable. Also, if you've got any ideas for future guests, or perhaps you want to advertise on the podcast, send us an email to unicorn@lawson.media. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>